Hello and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Hello, my name is Jasper Rees and I'm here at the quietly bustling offices of Thames and Hudson in Hoban to talk to the author Peter Conrad about his book Mythomania. Mythomania began as a series on Radio 4. In 10 15-minute think pieces, he examines the interlocking of myth, legend and contemporary culture. From Her Majesty the Queen to the sugary mutation known as the Cronut, from Oscar Pistorius to the Oyster Card via flight MH370, Peter Conrad hunted for mythological meanings in the most unexpected crannies. But he proved unable to leave the subject alone and has now written a tremendously entertaining book. Its new bedmates include Michael Jackson and Stephen Hawking, while the book also ponders the significance of cinema's sexy young vampires and the vast rubbish dumps swilling around the Pacific Ocean. Mythomania contains multitudes, and it will surprise no one who reads it that one fan, upon listening to Conrad's thoughts on the likes of the bamboozling Kardashian clan, experienced what he called a mindgasm. Peter, the original series was suggested by Roland Barthes' uh, book Mythologies. How did that template assist you in selecting the subjects of the essays, first for the radio series, then for the book? And to what extent do you feel free to wander off down your own path? Oh, I've always marched to my own drum, uh, even though in this case Bart was supposed to be beating it. Uh, no, I mean, the, the, the occasion for the radio series was Bart's centenary, which was coming up. Uh, but in choosing the subjects, no, I wasn't constrained at all by, by wanting to connect with Bart. I mean, I chose things that intrigued me. Uh, and only then, after the event, did I look back to think, can I connect this with Bart? I wanted, for instance, to write about the, the Shard. And then I thought, well, this would be interesting because Bart wrote about the Eiffel Tower. I mean, how would these two things um, go together? Uh, I wanted to write, for instance, about vaping. I mean, because I'd been puzzled by all of these people who were walking down the street emitting steam from their mouths and sticking biros in in their mouths uh, and when I discovered what this was I thought this is a this is a great subject and then I realized that Bart like every French intellectual in the 1950s was hardly ever photographed without a pipe or a cigar or a cigarette in his hand or his mouth so this was this could be related back to Bart if you see what I mean but Bart was I mean I should say this a bit bumptiously and, and without having due respect for him I suppose Bart was, was always a little bit in the, in the background. Although I found it very interesting to do it as a way of measuring what had happened in the world between his time, which was 50 years ago, and, and ours. I mean, he was running at the beginning of this consumerist revolution, this awareness of, of mass culture, and was writing against it in a way. I mean, attempting to keep American fast food and Coca-Cola out of France. So, um, you know, there's no now no way of fighting such a fight. I mean, we just overwhelmed by it, and we have to uh, dive into it in all its glory and all its its muck, I suppose. So he wasn't really much of a guide beyond a certain point. 
Were there some topics which yielded up mythological parallels more fruitfully than others? Um, I'm, you've mentioned vaping, but I'm thinking maybe of Nando's, which I can't somehow picture you enjoying a hearty meal at. There's no need to picture me in Nando's because I've never crossed the threshold. Uh, that was one that the producer of the radio series was desperate for me to do. I mean, I think it was the only thing that he had positively insisted on, and I accepted with a heavy heart, but managed to do it without, without going in or eating any of that peri-peri chicken. I downloaded the menu, which is as close as I ever want to get to Nando's, and I found it just absolutely a mythological feast. I couldn't believe my, my luck. I mean, it gave me the beginning of the series and the beginning of the, the book and the first section of the book is called A Newer Testament and it's about biblical myths and the way that they play in the current world. The first being the apple, the, the white apple that ignites every time we creative types turn our Macs on in the morning and the relationship between the apple Mac icon and the Garden of Eden, the relation between the knowledge that was fatal to Adam and Eve and the information that uh, empowers us and turns us into gods. And then I was able to do the second chapter on Nando's, where the whole mythology is that of devilment, you know, where spice, um, the peri-peri, becomes this kind of exciting demonic adventure that you're undertaking. I mean, you can't go to a restaurant these days, and when you go to a restaurant these days, you go to consume a myth to not to eat your dinner. You know, if you go to McDonald's, you go to be happy, have a happy meal. If you go to Nando's, you go to eat on the wild side. Uh, and then, you know, in the same section, I was able to write about the, the shard in relation to the Tower of Babel, for, for instance. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the more, when you start to think about it, these myths are absolutely everywhere. You know, I mean, you don't even have to look very far, because these myths are primal stories. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the stories, stories about everyone's human experience. I mean, this was one of my objections to Bart as well. I mean, he defines myth as a form of speech, because he comes out of this world of structural linguistics that was so intellectually trendy in the 40s and, and 50s. And his analysis of myth is, is entirely linguistic. I mean, I, to me, myth is not a form of speech. It's a, a kind of story telling. No, I mean, it's a primal story of which there are endless versions, all of which are, are true. So that, you know, it's very easy to, for instance, take the case of Achilles' heel and relate it to Oscar Pistorius with, without, without limbs, that, that sort of thing, or to see the Kardashians as, you know, the invention of a new Milky Way, as inhabitants of a kind of pagan pantheon of goddesses who are attractive to us and appealing to us because they they behave badly without any scruples or inhibitions. I mean, the myths are, are absolutely everywhere, uh, especially now that they are being used to sell things in this consumerist world. You know, and it was, and it's been true for a long time. I mean, the you know the the tiger in the tank, that that was the brand, the selling um, pitch for a certain kind of automotive fuel in the 1950s, or or the knight on the shining white horse, whom I remember in black and white television advertisements in my adolescence, who used to ride across the back garden, get his lance out, and strike the clothes that were hanging outdoors, drying on the rotary clothes hoist in every Australian backyard and turn them dazzling white. I mean, there are myths everywhere. 
Well, then there's, of course, the Oedipus complex as well. But uh, d- d- what is it about mythic figures from these ancient Ur-texts? Now more than ever, they seem to readily supply a, a commentary on, on contemporary culture. Now, you remember towards the end of the 20th century, uh, this guy Fukuyama or all that, was that the power station that blew up? I don't know. Some, some savant with a Japanese name said we had arrived at the end of history, which was supposed to be this kind of golden moment when the Berlin Wall came down and everywhere became capitalist and liberal democratic, you know, as if. Now, we are now, you know, we, we're now in a world beyond history. I mean, we're back in the rather primitive, irrational, crazy world where these myths originated, you know, where people didn't really understand the forces that were acting upon them and told these stories in an attempt to rationalise them. I mean, originally, the first mythic stories were about great elemental upheavals in the, in the natural world. Now these mythic stories are about you know, political forces uh, that are convulsing our world and changing it beyond recognition. Uh, so we're back in a kind of you know, God-haunted, demon-driven world like that of, of very primitive people where we are reduced to relying on these fables in an attempt to understand what's happening to us. I mean, it, you, know, you can see this right happening, first of all, I suppose, right at the beginning of the, the 20th century. This is, this is not new. I mean, the great works of modernist art, things like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring and uh, Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex and things like this, I mean, the old Joyce's Ulysses are all bringing these mythic stories back because they have a, a sense that you know, the world is no longer a material place, I mean, a, you know, a place that can be described by realism. It's a place of irrational forces and, and terrors. I mean, all of this, of course, goes back to the 1920s. I mean, it took several decades for all of this to percolate into mass culture which I think it began to do in the 50s and 60s. And now it's, it's percolated, or I mean percolated is to use to dainty a metaphor, it's spewed into politics. So we're back in a world like that of the 1930s, where the politicians are mythic figures, you know, and it's not a, not a good world to be in, actually. I'm going to um, therefore raise the tone or lower it one by by mentioning the Kardashians. Oh, I can't, yes. We can't let this conversation pass without talking about them. They turn up in their own chapter. They're in the chapter on selfies, and the chapter on dinosaurs, in which their sorority is compared to the all-female gaggle of velociraptors yeah. bred in Jurassic Park. What is the eternal fascination of this um, this clan? Not forgetting their. Um, uh, the, the stepfather figure who is in, in fact um, uh, has an undergone gender reassignment they've taken humanity into a kind of new area I suppose with uh, with Bruce Jenner's gender reassignment they're also a fantastic example of the myth industry the way in which I mean you take this tribe of entirely talentless, ordinary young women, one of whom has as her major asset a very, very large backside, as even she would agree. And Kim says in a rhyming couplet, I do it with class because I got a big ass. Mm. You take, you take these, these girls and you make them world famous and mega rich 
on the basis of no talent whatsoever. You know, on the on the basis of publicity and self-projection and the bombardment of the news media. And it produces a spectacle that is is really in, interesting. I mean, terrifying, but but interesting. I mean, because this is how religions begin, and except that it's a very contemporary version of religion. I mean, the old myths are about how God created us and told us what to do. Nowadays, the story is about how people turn themselves into gods and goddesses or into presidents of the United States by puffing themselves up, making big noises, um, getting themselves constantly photographed, telling stories or lies about themselves, showing off their their bums. Um, you know, it's a you know kind of exercise in self divinization. Or there's another aspect of it, too, which is that it's about how we, out in the darkness, in our anonymity, collude in this process or assist this process by agreeing to worship these people as as gods, as celebrities. And you know, celebrities are what we what we call them, but it's a kind of a kind of divinity, a homemade divinity, which we agree to worship and we agree to buy the products that they sell us and so on, like the Kardashians with their skin products and, and um, so on. Because we know at the end of the day, we also have the right to destroy them or to exult in their disgrace when they destroy themselves. The mechanics of a religious system is is what you see on view here. In, in a way, we, you know, I mean... We are liberated from being in the position that Adam and Eve were in the garden, where God was tyrannizing them and threatening them and cursing them with uh, mortality, because we're in control of, you know, we, we elect the gods and can then vote them out of, of office. But you know, all of this is very odd, you know, given that the great triumph of the 19th century was supposed to be that human beings w- were being freed from the oppression of God, as Nietzsche declared. You know, look where we are now, not much more than a century ago. I mean, we're not being tyrannised by one God. We're being tyrannised by and sold things by hundreds and thousands of these gods. And it's no consolation, you know, when one of them goes down in flames because there will be others to to uh, replace them. And as I said, one of them is now the President of the United States, which is not good. Well, apropos of which, there is an enlightening chapter on the meaning of Air Force One, which indeed has a new occupant for the next however many years. Uh, Where does President Donald Trump fit into the mythological pantheon? Well, he's totally a mythopaid politician. I mean, the politicians who are more ordinary mortals, like uh, dear President Obama, how I miss him already, uh, he was asked when he was running for re-election four years ago uh, what he might miss about being president, and and he said, oh, "I'll miss the plane." But the, you know, Trump already had a a plane which was more gilded and gaudy and commodious than Air Force One, presumably. So you know, he must regard Air Force One as being you know, the the equivalent of a London bus. I would have thought. I mean, probably he, he may even have already refused to fly in it because it just has United States of America written on it instead of Trump. But, I mean, I regard him as a totally mythopaic politician in the same way that, that Hitler was, you know, given that everything, everything that he said to get himself elected 
was mythic, meaning mendacious. You know, everything that came out of his mouth was a, was a lie. And he was never called on any of the lies because there's no standard of truth anymore in this mythological world we inhabit. I mean, it's no surprise that the end of last year, the end of 2016, which was a very bad year for the, the human race, in my view, the Oxford English Dictionary said that the word of the year was a compound word called post-truth. I mean, that's, that's the world that we now live in. And people pointed out all the way through the election campaign that what Trump and his surrogates and supporters were saying was untrue. But it, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't do him any harm at all because people either forgot or else they, you know, they, they so liked the idea of this big, beautiful, as Trump always said it was going to be, war, you know, that was going to keep the Mexicans out. You know, it's enough to, to create the image, you know, to, to evoke the myth. You don't need to do anything to make it happen. I mean, we live in a very strange world. And this is not even to mention ISIS with its black flags and its entirely imaginary territory and its acronymic name, which just happens to coincide with that of one of the great, the ancient Egyptian gods of fertility. Peter Conrad, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Jasper. Mythomania is available to buy at thamesandhudson.com. Listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 